Hi everyone, I'm Pamelia Chia, and you are listening to the Singapore Noodles podcast, your go-to destination to learn about Singaporean food culture. Today, I have on the show Wu Tiyun, who is the founder of The Weird and Wild, which is an Instagram account that uses illustration to make climate information accessible and to spark action. In the following conversation, we chat about the power of social media and illustrations, as well as the difficulties and complexities of making better food choices in Singapore. And at the end, Tiyun also shares some of her favorite food businesses to support. So, how did this idea for your Instagram page come about? Ah. Uh... It came about when I was still in uni doing environmental studies at NUS, and then I realized that a lot of the stuff that I was learning in school was really good. I I mean, in terms of understanding science, understanding how much local science there was, I was just like, how is this not you know available to the public? Why are we not learning about this as a society who cares or at least who needs to know about climate change? And then I think at that time people were also getting interested in plastics. Like there was a very big anti-straw movement in twenty eighteen, and people were asking me, "Oh, where do I get alternatives? Where do I recycle?" And in my head was like, "I know exactly where to get that, but if I realized when you Google it, it's not very easy to find." So I started this page because a friend was complaining that my my Facebook was very messy. Like he doesn't know where to find all the useful things. So I said, "Okay, why not I just move all the useful things on Instagram where." I can like illustrate a little bit and then like have have just have fun with the page lah. Yeah, but it was very mm-hmm. intentional, right? I mean, the content that you put out on the Instagram page. Yeah, and I would say that I don't know whether I mean I don't know whether you face this with like Singapore noodles, where social media is just if you want to use it very intentionally, it can do a lot for you. Yeah. Yeah. I totally get that. I mean, so so my husband Wax, right? He's very against social media. <laughs> Not very against. <laughs> he is on social media, but uh-huh. he feels that oh, you're training the algorithm and things like that. They're harvesting oh, yeah. your data. But I, I keep telling him that, you know, I see that when you have a message, social media is so powerful to get that message out and to get people excited about your mission. Um, mm. It's very different from, you know, how in the past people would do it. Mm-hmm. I totally agree. And I can imagine in the food heritage space, in the past, if it wasn't for social media, it would be advocated through like cookbooks. Yeah. Like, <laughs> like the books. $10 popular kind of books. <laughs> you know what I mean? Or like yeah. like outdated kind of design, um, mm. yeah. So I, I just feel that um, when I when I started Singapore noodles, people were telling me things like, oh, you know, it's very refreshing because it's almost like a virtual cookbook uh, kind of yeah. thing. Um, yeah, which is why when I looked at your content, it was also very refreshing for me because, um, you know, you you had these really. I mean, it wasn't dumbed down or anything. You know, you had like really complex um, infographics and discussions on the comment section. Um, So how did you try to gel the two? I mean, using illustrations to convey um, important messages. Yeah, I would say that my inspiration was, you know, the the cartoonist Sunny Liu. And I was at a panel that he was, I mean, I was watching a panel that he was speaking at. And people asked him, you know, why comics to talk about something as difficult and as nuanced as Singapore history, right? And I think what he said was that, um, that really gelled with me is the fact that illustrations or cartoons 
sort of lower your barrier as to the content that's going to come because people assume that graphics and cartoons are for juvenile comics or like for children. So then when they look at it, they're already like, oh yeah, I know this one I confirm can read on. You know, I definitely will get what's going on. And then as you swipe through, I think you you get absorbed into the narrative, the complexity without even realizing that it's more complex than you initially imagined. Mm. And I think I really wanted to play on that because I wanted people to come into climate issues feeling as though they're going to get it. It's not as complicated as the numbers that they're reading. It's not complicated because of the science, but it's just very simple if someone took the time to say, okay, I sat down with all the all the journals and I read it all and this mm-hmm. is what it actually means. So I thought like, why not just play around and see what illustrations can do? And I think for Instagram-wise, illustrations and colours tend to do a lot better than just pure text. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So then I say, why not just challenge the algorithm a little bit and see where it goes? Yeah. But when you first started the the Weird and Wild, right, did you have a certain mm-hmm. idea of your target audience? I mean, um, did you feel like, oh, you know, this is too much jargon. I don't think they'll be able to handle it. Or like, I don't think they'll be able to handle such intellectual kind of um, nuance about the topic. So did you ever feel like you had to dumb it down? Or was it just like, okay, this is what I think people should know and I'm going to put it out there? Mm. I think not really, because when I started it, it meant to be a resource page. Like initially, I was doing a lot of like, okay, if you want to find alternatives, I'm going to draw everything out for you. And this is what it meant. And then I think I sort of journeyed with the page where I was learning a lot more about things like, you know, if what does the colonization of the environmental movement mean? What are the more difficult conversations that we needed to have? And as I was learning that, I mean, I was lucky because then I can communicate that, you know, I found this, I found that. It's not as if I knew all these things and then now I'm downloading it to whoever's reading. Mm -hmm. So I think that process sort of helped because I was as confused as any person just getting into this space just with just a little bit more environmental knowledge than before. So I feel like, you know, maybe if I were to document my thought process, anybody could get it without me having to dumb down concepts. But mm. I think when it comes to numbers, that is the part that I felt I had to dumb down. But by dumb down, I mean, you know, when they tell me mm-hmm. like, oh, uh, I Singapore needs to reduce our carbon emissions by X amount. I'm like, I don't know how to make sense of this X amount without yeah. telling it to you in a way that's like, okay, you know, this is exactly what it means. And they use some silly cartoon to explain the numbers. And I felt like that was the only part, not because it's difficult to grasp. It's just, you know, not a very tangible thing that people can take away. And hence, mm. vandalizing it will stick better with, with a person. Yeah. When I looked at your content, what I really liked about it was that it featured a whole range of different topics related to care for the environment, which included food, which is I, which is something that I feel is often left out of the conversation. Like you previously talked about how there was this huge shift towards avoiding the use of plastic, right? Everyone was adopting bamboo straws and metal straws <laughs> and what have you. Yeah. That not enough people talked about food, you know, um, how it intersects with our culture, which is very, very unique, right? Mm. Um, just this morning, I was on Instagram and I came across this 
post um, Instagram story by Willin Lowe, who is like a really famous chef in Singapore, right? And he he loves food heritage. He loves traditional food. So he took a photo of um, his bag of kopi in the plastic bag. And he was like, oh, it's so nice to have kopi, you know, drinking kopi from, from a bag. And I was just thinking, you know, like, like I love this kind of thing also, you know. Like, like <laughs> if if we were to start drinking kopi from keep cups, like I don't know how I would feel, you know. Mm, so there's mm. a tension there. So what do you? Mm. How do you reconcile the two? My God, that's so interesting because I never thought of it that way, and I have a feeling it's really because you see keep cups and the likes, right? It's designed for a Western. Okay, uh, I mean keep cup is Australian. It's designed for an Australian audience. Um, so many of these reusable cups are just not designed to be culturally sensitive or culturally specific. So I've always been worried because, like, I've even emailed Keep Cup this before, you know, like, your cups do not fit, you know, the, like, the way that Singaporean or tropical countries drink bubble tea, for example. It doesn't make sense for our context. Your silicon cups don't always fit like our uncle pouring the kopi in because it's so unstable. So in my head is, yeah, I guess the issue really is that there can be alternatives. If we think about it from a Singaporean angle, if someone here were to design it to suit our needs and to understand like certain nostalgic elements, because I can totally imagine having the same experience just designed with, you know, a better material so that you can use this for a longer time, but still retain the essence of it all. And I mean, personally, I, I, don't, I don't really sweat the small plastic that, that is used. Yeah. I'm more concerned about the large amounts of like styrofoam and things like that. Of course, it's, it's still notable. But yeah, it's difficult if we are adopting things that are just not built for, for our culture. Mm, yeah, I mean, like now, I, I, I can see so many aspects of things that are recognizably Singaporean. I mean, maybe it's because I'm overseas and I'm feeling very nostalgic, <laughs> yeah. right? I mean, even things like the brown paper, you know, like the... Yes! <laughs> yeah. yeah, and even the old nasi lemak used to be wrapped in banana leaf. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which I miss. Yeah, and like Thai fan is always associated with that white styrofoam box, you know? yeah exactly Um, so so i feel like it's gonna take a bit of a shift and do you think maybe that could be a reason why the older generation is like more resistant than younger people when it comes to caring for the environment because it's so intertwined with culture right Mm -hmm. yeah i would say that there is a generation of people who definitely find some or at least are facing some resistance to personal environmental habits because where they came from to where they are now definitely comes with a lot of disposable use. I mean, I was reading a lot about plastic and culture yesterday mm. and they were just saying that actually the invention of plastic was to free the people of very menial tasks of like cleaning of, and it was also almost a sign of wealth or economic status because finally you don't have to reuse that plate for like don't know how many times mm. you can just throw it away. And I think it stuck with me because I can imagine the people who've had to grow up with those notions of what success meant, what wealth meant, to not be able to go back to it and say, oh my god, so late, I need to bring my, my container to do this again, when actually they did this as a child. So my dad used to say, you know, you bring the tinkat to the noodles man downstairs, you take your noodles and you can back up because it was so expensive to buy like disposable takeaway containers. Mm. So... To me, it always felt weird because the older generation had this experience of what 
using less or just savoring the, the materials and making sure that you use the best of it. You make the best out of the materials that you have. And then they transition into a hyper-disposable culture. Mm. And then yeah. now we ask them to go back. It's not as if they weren't familiar. It's just, is this more culture then? Yeah, it, it feels like regression to them, right? Yeah, like so, going back to the kampong days, right? Exactly, yeah. So even the whole idea of like the milkman, right? In the past, they used to have people deposit like glass bottles once they're done with their milk. And then now we have milk cartons. And now we're saying, let's go back to that. Then... Yeah. I can't fault the, the that generation who feels like, why are we going backwards? Mm. Yeah. yeah. Or even simple things like, you know, tempeh used to be fermented within the leaves, right? Traditional mm. leaves. And now it's like all like very, you know, vacuum packed, like, uh, factory made. And um, yeah. yeah, I mean, some of them just can't, can't grapple with, I mean, why would you want to you know, go back to that. Or even, I mean, things like film photography. I mean, like, you know, speaking about something from a different realm, like my, I was really interested in film photography and my, my father-in-law, he used to take a lot of film photos. And uh, now with DSLRs, he was like, why are you still using the <laughs> film camera? I don't understand, you know, why bother going to like a dark room to develop your photos and waiting, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's almost funny because then it is that practice that is so intentional, right? That mm-hmm. compared to DSLR or your iPhone cameras where everything is so like, oh my god, okay, take one and you totally forget about it. Mm-hmm. Versus the entire process of developing a film, like a film yeah. photo, you sit through the process, the labor, and then whatever comes out is so much more valuable than before, than like yeah. your, your camera. But actually, I feel that this is a very um, young person mentality, like the romanticism of everything, right? Oh, wow, it's so romantic to eat the tempeh out of the leaf. You know what I mean? Um, but to them, there is, it's just very practical, right? Very functional. Yeah. Like, I mean, this is what we did because we didn't have plastic or we didn't have like, a factory to make our tempeh. So yeah. I, I just feel that it's a bit difficult there. And, you know, sometimes it does feel a bit ironic because this... I mean, their generation is known for being very frugal in the kitchen, mm. right? And um, mm. I do feel that now with affluence, right, young Singaporeans are becoming more and more wasteful. Do you feel the mm. same? Yeah, exactly. You feel like things matter a lot less. Mm. Like disposable, la. I mean, things are... Yeah. So mm. it's like, I mean, plastic is one, but even things like clothes, mm. you feel like, let's say like, uh, if my iPhone wire breaks tomorrow... My immediate thought is, okay, how do I get on Shopee to replace it? Rather than, yeah. how do I just stick this out with electric tape and then pray it can be used for the next two months? Yeah, that's so true. Uh, I remember there was one incident where my friend came to visit me in Australia. And I was just surprised at how, you know, he could just throw food away without thinking about it. You know, like, mm. and I, I was just like, you know, how how is this? Like, how is it that you can do this without thinking? Like, it's like a very reflexive kind of action. But then again, you do have a lot of youths in Singapore who care a lot about um, about the environment, right? So what do you think really differentiates the two groups? The group that, you know, cares about the environment and the group that um, is okay with wasting food and that has become normative? I, I mean, I think that it... It could just be a life trajectory thing. And I say this because for me, my worry with climate change is the fact that in my 30s and 40s, so much of the disaster, the catastrophic events is going to happen in my lifetime versus 
okay lah, so a bit morbid, <laughs> but it's like, you know, in their lifetime, they feel like they have lived through a lot. They've lived through so much change that to them, this is going to be at the tail end of their life and what can they do now besides like, make the most of it because they've, they've earned it, like rightfully so. So to me, it's it's difficult because I think there is that tension where they feel like, you know, I'm allowed to do all these things because I've worked so hard to get here. You know, I've like pillaged the entire the earth to, to get here and I, I deserve to, to reap what I've sowed. And I can't fault that because, you know, we have as so many environmentalists actually have parents in the petrochemical industries. Mm. And that's because it took it it's so it's such a big part of Singapore's economy that you can't really fault them for doing so because they had to survive. But now that we are at a different life stage or as a society, it's about time for me to say, you know, why not we think differently? Why not we we do something else? Because I still have easily fifty more years. I do not want mm-hmm. to be living in this heat. <laughs> and like mm. sweating and then like changing to like the rain every other day so I think I am a bit more privileged because with that and social media where I'm learning a lot more about why this matters why my action matters yeah it, it does make a difference because in the past my dad was saying that you know news about um, an attack somewhere else across the world took two weeks to arrive but now it's instantaneous Mm. And I think it's also got to do with having this trait, which is being able to look into the future to, you know, see the consequences and then like weigh the, weigh the consequences. Um, in a way, it's, it reminds me of that marshmallow test, right? About instant gratification. Um, like if I were to eat this, um, you know, if I were to eat beef every meal, it's like instant hit of dopamine versus like, you know, if I think about my my welfare, <laughs> a lot of people find it very hard to to say, oh, you know, like I would put my long-term pleasure or like mm. this pleasure that's far away over my current uh, well-being or, yeah. you know, more satisfaction. Yeah, but actually speaking of sacrifice, like when we mentioned that, when we talk about going vegetarian in Singapore for like environmental or animal reasons, a lot of friends actually come to me and say, ah, then how do I eat my batomi? And yeah. I think that stuck with me because I can imagine things like salads or like hummus dips in other contexts make a lot more sense or like when you switch steak with something else. But in a Singapore context, I really struggle with I don't think you can really replace the lot yeah. for me. Yeah. So I'm curious to ask you, like, how does it? How do you think that can square with like a vegetarian or plant based diet? So I mean, there's the struggle that I've been having, right? Because when I moved to Australia, that was when the bushfires really hit, and oh. uh, you know, and I mean, I saw firsthand like the devastation. Like I had colleagues who who fled with their families you know with their lives and it was like a very close shave kind of thing and suddenly you know this thing that you you saw from singapore on tv or on on the news um suddenly became very real like you are no longer living in that safe little bubble that is singapore um and then i I think on the back of that was the amazonian rainforest right the deforestation and it was credited to the meat industry and i was like all my life i've been this meat eater and uh, now i've been forced to take a like clear hard look at at my choices Mm. because before that it was always like you know I, i i was working as a chef and you know you would like scoff at people who were coming <laughs> with their dietaries. You're like, huh? This meat 
meat, um, I mean, this meatless person or like this person who can't take prawns, you know, like where's the flavor going to come from? Where's the umami <laughs> going to come from? You know, what, what are they missing out on? Because yeah. I think we lump people who are vegetarian or like don't take meat with like the gluten-free folks and with like the soy uh... milk latte folks, you know, like it just has such a bad rep. And then like when I started eating more vegetables and starting like avoiding meat more often i mean i wasn't fully vegetarian or vegan or anything like yeah. that um i i did feel like i wasn't as legit as a chef or like a foodie as before you know uh-huh. because there's this whole stereotype uh of like um a, a, a chef who, who makes salad is not as legit as a chef who makes like steaks or like meat pies you know what i mean uh-huh. yeah uh, and so it was very difficult and at the same time, I felt that, um, you know, what you mentioned, like hummus and salad just didn't gel with my palate that much. I mean, I'm mm. like a born and bred Singaporean. And so I love my tatami. I love my hemi, you know. Yeah. It was very difficult to gel the two worlds. And then after a while, I just felt like, why are we trying to like go, like think on the line of making, like veganizing our meaty favorites? Because it will never, ever match up you know yeah yes yeah exactly and and the whole idea of disguising vegetables to look like meat really disturbs me you know Mm. like why can't we celebrate vegetables in their own right Mm. you know Mm. i mean in chinese cuisine there's this whole thing called fang huan cai which means imitation meat uh, dishes or products Mm. right okay fashion gluten to look like meat or like drumsticks or something and you can't tell the difference i mean there is a lot of creative uh, creativity and ingenuity in that and i really love that i really respect that but i think for the most part for me when i approach vegetables it's more about celebrating them in their own rights and like just stop trying to make like i mean i i, I respect all the all the content creators <laughs> out there who put amazing versions of like vegan laksas or like mm. vegan patomi out there but i feel that we can um, celebrate vegetables and the flavors that we're used to without having it be like a co- cookie cutter version of the things that we grew up with. Yeah, and I totally agree with that because I feel like when you try to substitute, you will never. There's a baseline that you're comparing with already that you're never going to reach. Versus, I'd rather have someone create like a similar noodle dish but have it completely mushroom based, and then loving whatever that is and not mm. saying this is vegan bak chor mee. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah, which is why I guess the, the alternative protein or meat movement disturbs me in a way because then you hold vegetarian food to very unfair standards mm. that vegetables just cannot give you what meat can give you. But it mm. doesn't mean that you cannot get the same umami as meat because I remember eating at this place where I hate cauliflower, but they roasted this cauliflower with some kind of like salt and it was so delicious that I was just like, my God, you know, if you told me that this was going to be my like main course for the day, I would definitely eat it. But if you tell me that this is a vegetarian version of like a mentaiko steak or something like that, I probably would have never chosen it. Yeah. yeah, that's so true. And, you know, now looking at um, social media accounts from Singapore, I realized that there's this huge shift towards eating like omni meat or like beyond meat. Is it mm. beyond meat? Yeah, there's beyond impossible omni meat. <laughs> so um, how, what do you make of that? Is it really 
does it really lower your carbon footprint? Because I I am suspicious of that. I feel mm. like maybe there is a lot of greenwashing in that space. So what are your personal views on mm. that? My take is that I guess for these kind of meats, if they replace real meat, then I think that the carbon emissions are quite commensurate and that it will drop because, you know, they always say that for the beef industry, you are growing pasture for cows to to graze and then after that you know just killing the cows up and then there's so much emissions that comes with feeding the cows like keeping the cows and then killing them so to me when you shift that to a factory in itself of course there will be lesser emissions but if you don't make that replacement it comes as a side dish you know and it's double the the, the emissions in that sense so whenever there are claims like that i would say that they're not entirely wrong, but they're not entirely right because it's to serve as a substitute rather than a, an additional thing that, let's say, chefs or restaurants can play with. Because mm. it doesn't make sense if you're using Impossible Meat to expand your menu. Like That doesn't give you the emission reduction that you need. But I would I'd say that as someone who is trying to eat more, I mean, as they say, flexitarian, right, where my, meat is not, my, my food is not meat-heavy, um, Impossible Meat and Beyond Meats do provide a very good alternative if I want the texture of meat. So I made tacos the other day and it was like avocado, salsa, and I just wanted something meaty to, to, to kind of like, I don't know, satisfy my palate. And I felt that Impossible Meat, if I marinate it with like your typical oyster sauce, soy sauce, light soy sauce and peppers, it tasted so good and I was so full that day because and my parents didn't even tell that it was fake meat. They thought it was real. Mm. And I say that for those purposes, I think it's good because I think if I went ahead with the taco without it, it would have tasted as flavorful. I don't mm. know what else can absorb the soy sauce and oyster sauce that fake meat or meat does. Mm. So in that sense, for an individual, I think it can be a good way to satisfy meat, certain meat cravings because mm. I think when you crave meat you're often craving the taste and the texture rather than the meat itself yeah yeah definitely I think vegetables are quite a difficult one because they have so much water in them compared yeah. to meat and so like they don't really have that you know really nice sear or like deep flavor that meat has and even like things like tempeh or tofu or even young jackfruit right like a lot mm. of people say they're very meat-like but I do feel yeah. that it's so different you know uh-huh. it, it cannot ever match up to pulled pork for example yeah I've always been so suspicious like oh my god how do you how do we even make that into pulled pork yeah and I think like you know whenever I think of people who are sharing like vegetarian food sometimes i always in my mind i'm thinking there has to be a compromise you know what i mean like there is always a flavor flavor compromise <laughs> yeah and like, you just don't take these people that seriously but you know i feel that times are changing and we really do have to acknowledge that diets are such a big part of of caring for the environment um mm. so what do you feel like is what do you feel is the sentiment on the ground right now? I mean, in Singapore, do youths um, care about the environment? Or do Singaporeans in general care about mm. the environment? Oh, I feel like I'm in an echo chamber where I think people do care. But it's a very... Like when I you know go out and talk to family, relatives, and other friends who are not in the space, I would say that they're not as keen about environmental issues. Not that they mm. don't know, but their interest in it isn't as 
strong, I guess. But then it makes things like, let's say, impossible food, vegetarianism, like thrifting, these kinds of personal consumption behaviors. They get interested in things like that because they're like, oh my god, so exciting. What's this like meatless thing? Or what's this new way of shopping? And I thought that those were very good ways to start conversations, if anything. Yeah. To say like, hey, there's this whole realm of alternative protein that you should get involved in or you should understand. And yeah, I would say the the, the plant-based community in Singapore is also growing, mm. uh, especially amongst young people. And I would think that older people are also involved. Like, As someone who doesn't go, isn't like fully plant-based, I was like reprimanded by a 60-year-old uncle the other day who was plant-based for health reasons. Oh, And wow. then he was telling me, God, you're in your 20s, you know, you better go and eat vegetables now because so much of the cancer comes from, like, the meat that we're eating, all the chemicals. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, I don't know how much truth, I probably, there's probably some truth to that, but it yeah. made me realise that the whole plant-based movement, there's so many aspects, because it's environmental, it's health, it's, um, it's animal rights, but also the fact that I was talking to a US activist about how veganism or vegetarianism in southeast asia really is very okay in asia alone is very different from the u.s because actually asia has a very big population of plant-based like plant-based people i Mm. mean much of india was also vegetarian for a while the buddhist community in asia is is vegetarian with their own kinds of dishes and like vegetarian indian food is so good so then in that sense if we're bringing over the the western idea of vegetarianism it's just not going to sit on our palates which is so high in flavor it's so high i guess sometimes fat also yeah that it makes me wonder is the plant-based movement here missing something exactly okay i might or might not take this off the record but (laughs) that is actually the concept of my second book so it's basically (gasps) about drawing inspiration from Asia from you know mm. that rich history of vegetarianism because I mean it's not just India it's also you know countries like Korea like Japan Ooh, like really yes. strong, like vegetarian um, I think they call it temple food temple cuisine right there's yeah. so much information and so much wisdom there that we don't look to I mean we always look to the west right about like um, salads how to make grain bowls how to make you know vegetarian <gasps> exactly yeah yeah, yeah. So, I mean, that's something that I definitely feel very passionate about. And also, I think beyond eating more vegetables, I think it's also about eating meat that is less prized, you know? Like how we always go for like the drumsticks or the breasts, you know? But in the past, people always embraced eating offals, eating like nose to tail before it became a thing. And um, I mean, just looking at the way Singaporeans used to eat, right? It's really like, I love it because it's so resourceful. It makes the most of things that people here like in Australia would throw away like here really? things like, yeah here things like pig ears pigtails awful mm. they go to the docks you know they don't eat them but in Singapore we love these parts right and I think that is a huge part of being environmentally aware and and conscious it's interesting you say that because to me it I guess it can go both ways, right? Like the more intensely we eat these things, the more we have to 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 kill animals or like to, to just have mm-hmm. more space for, for, for poultry. And why I guess a lot of people go envir- like vegan for the environment is just to say that we're trying to balance out the people who are eating mm-hmm. more 
intensely. But I totally get what you mean in that I think exactly that, like Asian cuisines generally also tend to use parts that other places don't use. So you really maximize everything that you you are cutting and even things like chicken's feet. Oh my god, I love chicken's feet. Or like pig organs yeah, and yeah. things like that. And it really is a mindset thing like now that you mention it. Yeah. So on a personal level, apart from trying to eat more vegetables and less meat, what are mm-hmm. other um, things that, you know, other, what do you call it, other means that you have adopted to be more mm-hmm. mindful as an eater or as a cook? Yeah. Oh my God. Okay, so I don't cook. <laughs> okay, I mean, I cook very occasionally. I can't cook. I used to bake a lot. I used to bake a lot. Yeah. I saw the waste that came with it. Um, and that was a big part of why I stopped because it was so wasteful. Um, it was very difficult. And I mean, as a baker then, what I found the most interesting was finding substitutes. And because I guess, I don't know whether it's just slightly different, but the substitutes in baking don't really affect the taste or structure of the final product mm. as much, even though there are some compromises. So it meant like, you know, substituting egg with, but I can't remember what, what it was. Flex seeds, yes. Substituting egg whites with flex seeds. And I was just so surprised by how some of these substitutes really give you the same kind of texture. And I didn't imagine like flex seeds would be able to froth this yeah. much. Or even like, I don't know what's the other... I can't remember uh, what's the other thing. Right? Some water. Uh, yeah, aquafaba. Yeah, and I was just so surprised by these alternatives that don't really alter the taste or the final product. Mm that much and I think when I was baking you know changing from normal butter to vegan butter of course there's some difference in like fat content and things like that but I was making very dense things like brownies where I switched over and I did an experiment with friends because a friend once we bought these like vegan brownies and he said this thing which is oh yeah I can I can taste the lack of eggs and I was just like what do you even mean you can taste the lack of eggs? So I started out trying to make vegan brownies too. And I didn't tell anybody. So I just said, hey, you know, I'm bringing brownies. Can y'all try? And they were like, wow, I can't taste the difference. Or like, oh my God, this tastes really good. And then at the end of the month, I was like, you know, I did a whole baking, like vegan bakes uh, prank challenge. And I said that, you know, you guys don't know what you're talking about when you tell me you can't taste eggs because you literally didn't tell the difference. Mm. And I think from that experience, I realized that there are some substitutes where it's very possible to make because ultimately the final taste test, it's cultural. It's just whatever that you are convincing yourself. It's like, oh, I don't taste eggs. I don't taste whatever. I don't taste milk. When actually you don't really see the difference or feel the difference unless someone tells you this is a vegan cake, for example. Yeah. So from that experience, I think I enjoyed playing with substitutes. Mm. But when in terms of like cooking, I think I don't do so much of the cooking. But something that has stuck with me is a friend who's in Thailand and she grows her own food. And there was a point of time where she was advocating for Singaporeans to start growing their own food because you don't really understand how much soil or the natural environment nourishes and feeds you until you grow your own food and realize how difficult it is. And it stuck with me because I am a very small eater. So there are times where I do waste food. 
But it was only when, you know, at home I have a papaya plant that sprouted from nowhere and it started to not fruit as well. And my mom took a lot of months to feed the soil, to just take care of that tree. And now it's giving us three to four papayas a month. And I'm like, three to four papayas a month, I can get that in the supermarket the next day. But it felt so different eating the, the papaya that like my family harvested and we, we grew. And that was when I realized, oh my God, if things really destroy our soils, if things really disrupt our rain, my food is in peril. Like, what am I going to do when these things don't grow as well as before? Like, yeah, it just made me so aware. And now I'm a big advocate for people to grow their own food because you don't understand so much of like how soil works, how pH works and things like that if you don't grow it yourself. Yeah, I, I can get a little bit of what what you mean because my husband he grows things at home right and uh, to me it's like <laughs> is it really cheaper to grow things at home because you know when you go to the supermarket you can like just spend a few dollars and you get the same thing without all the effort and like yeah soil and fertilizer or like blood and bone kind of thing and it's like you have to wait literally wait for months for the thing to come <laughs> out and sometimes it, it doesn't even match up to what you get at the supermarket right like i always exactly. like you know sometimes when we're at the market i'm like okay i want to buy this but he's like no put it back i'll grow it for you and i'm like what if you would take you know many months to grow it and then it's it doesn't match up, you know, because from a, a cook's <laughs> perspective, I'm always about flavor and texture, right? Um, but I think really, like watching him grow things, it really gave me a newfound like understanding for how much effort, like what you said, how much effort it is to grow like mm. something as basic as like lettuce, you know? And to realize that mm. vegetables or like plants are like imperfect, um, and it really like yeah. changed my mindset of how things should look. Yeah, and especially when a lot of food waste comes from cosmetic filtering at the supermarkets where they actually throw things. I found out from uh, uh, these two chefs at Cosmo mm. in Singapore where they were teaching me that, you know, there's so much like fruits and vegetables that get thrown away because they're too big. I'm like, what do you mean they're too big? Like, isn't that a plus? They're like, no, then it's not standardized and the supermarkets can't sell them at like a particular Mm. price. Or if something is bruised because of handling, and I'm like, my God, it's just like a small cut, right, on an apple and they threw Mm. it out. And exactly like you said, it shifted my perspective on what food should look like because my papaya is full of holes from like birds trying to eat it. And then my mom just takes it and she carves that portion out and she's like, nah, you can still eat the rest of it. Yeah. And I was like, it's exactly... The-. But then she's also the same person that will go to the supermarket and say like, oh, this one a bit bruised. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm like, it's really a culture thing where in a different setting, you sort of, I don't know, hold your fruits and vegetables to a different standard almost. Yeah. Versus let's say a farmer's market or in your own garden. And I'm like, wow, that perception really needs to change. Yeah, I mean, living here in Australia where the food culture is really so different. Like, I remember, I mean, here in Australia, right, we really know our farmer. Like, sometimes you can buy produce direct from the farmer at farmer's market. But in mm. Singapore, there's, you know, there is a lack of that, right? You don't really know where your produce comes from. Um, I remember there was once when I was at the wet market and there was this Caucasian lady, lady there. She was, like, questioning the vegetable stall owner. She was like, is this sprayed? Is this organic? Like the auntie, like the Chinese auntie, she was like, like, you know, she was so frustrated and she was like, why, why does this even matter? 
So do you feel that when it comes to buying ingredients in Singapore, um, it's harder to be to make more sustainable choices? I would say yes, because we import so much that we rely on what we bring in rather than what we can grow here. So then that means that you have very little control as to how organic or how sustainable that particular produce is. I can imagine like, you know, out of all the different kinds of like kangkong that you're able to find, you probably may not even have a single organic option because of where we're importing it from. So you don't really have that choice to say, okay, I want to buy better because there's just no better option. And I know like in Singapore, local farmers are trying to produce vegetables and food at a price point that's very similar to to like where we are importing it from. And of course, in Singapore, where you're using like technology to do all these things, there's still a struggle to, to, to match it at that price point compared to buying it from like Malaysia or Indonesia where there's just so much land that they can sell it to you yeah. and it's already intensified to a point where it's almost very it's very cheap. So yeah, it's it's difficult to buy sustainable because then you don't have option and also at the same time, I feel like you don't really care as much because you don't know where it comes yeah. from. It's impossible to track down where it comes from and I think that's what makes... To me, that's why we are not as sustainable as we can be because we're just so alienated from where food comes mm, from. Yeah, definitely agree. And I also feel that it's also because when we, like, we want the food from the West, right? We want the nectarines or the peaches that come from Australia, for example. And uh, when I was here, I was like, oh my God, I've never tasted a better peach or like a better blueberry. <laughs> like, or like a better pumpkin. Like the ones in Singapore are always very like waterlogged. Um, but at the same time, you know, when friends tell me like, well, I wish I was where you are, you know, you're living the dream and whatnot. I, I do tell them, you know, I, I do miss a lot of regional produce from Asia. I do miss like, like the fresh gong gong that you get or like the sweet gailan or mm. like calamansi, you know, I feel that Singaporeans if we are able to embrace more of these Southeast Asian produce, then you get a better product, you know, because there's no comparing to the West. And also, you know, yeah. it really lowers the carbon footprint. But I think it really takes a mindset shift for people to embrace these vegetables and fruits. Yeah. Yeah, and it's also that I think because we want, we are, I feel like we get pickier with the more choices we yeah. have in that we want strawberries from Korea, like, stopped every other day you know we need to have avocados from mexico just available at our supermarket and then i'm just calculating like oh my god the food miles which is the carbon emissions associated with the transport and everything of food right when like you know i sometimes wonder is this really seasonal are we how are we able to get it all year round like what made it possible why can't we embrace like when i was in australia for a while they will have this section on seasonal fruits right and they change it with the season. And I'm like, I'd rather be only able to eat like peaches or apples or strawberries at a certain time of the month. And then I'll just time my desserts to be like that food heavy for a while. Because to me, it's, it's impossible to be able to get lychees all year round. Like how, how is that possible without some level of machinery or alterations to the fruit, the vegetable or the environment? So... I hope we get to embrace a bit more of nature's timing, if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah, <laughs> I can tell you that I do feel exasperated by it though. You know, like sometimes you just want to eat a juicy <laughs> peach any time of the year, you know. 
like here yeah. through it like like three quarters of the year and then like gorge myself on peaches like for 30 days or something yeah it's a huge mindset shift but you see right it, but Singaporeans can do this for durians oh, they wait the whole year to eat it in June but I think throughout the year you do have durian right it's just that it's not as oh yeah right I mean yeah. you do have a random durian cra- durian craving you can go to Geylang and get your fix um yeah but yeah I definitely like feel that in Singapore we also have our unique seasons like durian seasons or like you know certain seasonal mm. fruits or vegetables so I think something mm, interesting mm, that mm. I saw on your Instagram was um you were sharing about this bubble tea um business that was able to do bulk orders and reduce the plastic so I was wondering if you had any um food businesses in mind to recommend to listeners who might want to reduce their carbon footprint Hmm. So there are people in Singapore like um, Ugly Food where they are trying to tell people that you know ugly produce is actually very tasty. So they used to, I think they still do, they blend it into like uh, smoothies, into popsicles so that you wouldn't even realize that it was made from ugly vegetables or ugly foods all along. So I think they're trying to change the narrative of what ugly foods mean. And they're also selling like um, all these blemished foods at a very wholesale price. Mm. So people can definitely get their fruits and vegetables there. Um, there's a company called, uh, what's it called? Oh my God, I forgot. Uh, Three Dots, where they sell like surplus or rejected foods from F&B um, companies. Because I think sometimes um, companies tend to order more than they can use. So then the uh, tree dots take the surplus and redistribute it to other companies or consumers. My mom loves it because she can get like chicken at a very discounted rate and then she just keeps it forever. Mm. Yeah, and then there is Cosmo, which is, I think, uh, a small restaurant run by two chefs. Yes, yeah, and they're really trying to just change the gastronomical experience of you know what it means to be sustainable in, in your consumption. And they still do use meat, but they're so intentional in their products mm-hmm. and their food that I'm like, wow. Uh, yeah, I guess these are the main ones. And I know that in some supermarkets, they are trying to give like discounted, and they're trying to give discounts to like ugly foods mm-hmm. or foods or near expiring mm-hmm. foods. I think that's a good move. And also, um, I mean, visit your local web markets. Uh. They yeah. sell things in bulk. You don't have to use plastic. You don't have to. Yeah. And they are also the best people to speak to. Like you say, right? They, they may not know where it comes from, but they probably know how it got to our shores. And I think that's way better in terms of understanding our food compared to your local supermarket. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Um, and uh, but, but I also do feel that it's about... Um, Okay, so there is this one market, right? Tiong Baru Market. I don't really like it because everything is packaged. I'm not sure if you've been there recently, mm. but um, like they, they package everything in nice plastic bags. Uh, so it, it basically becomes mm. like a supermarket, right? Um, and I think yeah. maybe that, that is uh, consumer behavior that is driving this because it's all about demand and supply. So I think my last mm. question for you is linked to that. So what do you think is necessary for us Singaporeans to really move into uh, a mind space that is more conscious and more aware with regards to the environment? 
I think it really is about values and interrogating, you know, exactly what is your own relationship with food, with material, with consumption in itself. And I say that as someone who used to be a huge shopaholic and then I gave it all up in 2019. Yeah, and I, I had a motto for 2019, which was to rethink consumption. And that meant like I stopped buying anything new, especially clothes. And that if I really wanted to buy anything, I need to exhaust all options before buying new. So that meant like repairing my old stuff, finding it on carousel, thrifting. Wow. And I think from that, it has, yeah, it was really a huge shift because I used to be enamored by 11-11, all those sales, I will walk into any store. But after making that commitment, it's almost as though whenever I see sales, it doesn't affect mm. me as much. And it made me realize how much of this was in my head. And how much of it was driven by social media when I'm fed advertisements from friends, from society. And that goes the same with like food, right? Like for vegetarianism, so much of what you're eating also depends on cultural factors. And even things like peer pressure, where you feel like you don't want to burden your friends when you go to a place and there isn't vegetarian food. And it gets very difficult. And rethinking consumption to me, men evaluating like you know what it's not just about the absolute numbers or how many emissions i'm going to yeah. save but really what's going to be the best way for me to relate to food so that i make the best choices and i advocate for sustainability which is just a more mindful and more regenerative way of eating and living mm. such that we don't have to kill the earth yeah me. i love what you said about social media especially i i mean the same goes for food right i mean you you see very like like meat porn, like wagyu. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. So I think for for me, I I made a con- conscious effort to follow more people who were like cooking really exciting vegetarian things. Um, mm. There's one that I really love called Lion Dance Cafe. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of them, but I love what they're doing. Yeah. Have you met the people at Native Bar? No, not yet. Yes. So I remember going to the bar and then just feeling. So happy ordering whatever because the entire menu is plant-based mm. and it's so delicious and I was just like, oh my god. Yeah, and it's quite cutting edge, right? Like they when I was there, they made this frozen ends kind of cocktail. And I was like, wow, like it's, it's uh, <laughs> like what Noma is doing in, in Copenhagen or something. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's been such a pleasure talking to you. Like I feel that you are so articulate and so like you you've thought everything out. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. It was so nice speaking to you, especially from like the perspective of culture and food, which I never really thought about until now. So thank you so much for having me. That wraps up another episode of the Singapore Noodles podcast. You have been listening to Wu Tiyun, who is the founder of The Weird and Wild. Food media tends to focus on Singapore's best hits like chicken rice or laksa and fails to capture the full diversity of Singaporean food. By documenting overlooked recipes, Singapore Noodles seeks to share about Singapore's rich food culture with you. If you'd like to support the work that we do, sign up to be a member on our website, sgpnoodles.com. You'll get access to all recipes on the site and get to participate in our monthly cook-alongs. Once again, thank you for listening to the podcast and I'll catch you next week.